Hi there, welcome to a new episode of Lateral Conversations, my weekly podcast with cool people. My name is Thomas Mark. This time I'm talking to you from Barcelona, which is uh, the reason for the two weeks intermission we had. I will stay here for a couple of weeks longer and will we'll try to provide you with further podcasts in the weeks to come. But uh, surprisingly, the internet in Barcelona is sometimes pretty bad, so I don't know how this will be working out. Other than that, uh, I have some good news and some bad news for you. The good news is Thaddeus Russell is the guest of this week's episode. If you don't know him, he is such a smart guy. He is a history professor of Occidental College. He's the author of uh, my favorite book of the last year, that is The Renegade History of the United States, a fantastic book. And he's a mind-blowing podcast guest in the shows of Joe Rogan and Christopher Ryan. What he has to say is uh, fantastic. I urge everyone to read his book and listen to his podcast. This podcast, we are talking a little bit about this book, about the current political climate in the United States. Of course, about Donald Trump and Bernie Sanders, American imperialism and New Deal and fascism in the 40s. So, the bad news is, uh, since I am in Barcelona and it was raining heavily yesterday, the quality of the Skype stream was uh, substandard. I could hear him, him pretty well, but he had some troubling hearing what I had to say. So a flowing conversation was a little bit difficult to achieve. I wanted to get more into detail what uh, he uh, had to say, but technically it simply wasn't meant to be. So because of that, while the recording itself is not that bad, there are some breaks and hiccups in the conversation. Nonetheless, Thaddeus is a great teacher and has a lot to say. Uh, you will certainly enjoy this podcast despite all the technical difficulties. But hey, the podcast's free, so who wants to complain, right? But if you want to support this podcast, please do so by using the Amazon affiliate link or go to the Patreon page, which is a crowdfunding site, and buy me a coffee. So, without further ado, here's Thaddeus Russell. All the best to you guys. Uh, I hope I will be back pretty soon. Thaddeus, thank you for doing this. I, I know you're a busy man. Um, for those... I just wanted to ask if you can tell us something about your general approach to to politics and to history before we get more into the the book of yours. Well, thank you. Um, my general approach to politics and history uh, <laughs> have to do, I suppose, primarily with freedom. Um, I'm interested in freedom, uh, but from a left-wing perspective. Mm -hmm. I guess that's one way of putting it. That's one way I've been thinking about it lately. So I come from the left. Um, I was raised by radical socialist parents mm -hmm. in Berkeley, California in the 1970s and 80s. It was a hotbed of 
kind of the capital of American radicalism and sort of that was my milieu and I went to a very, very, very left-wing college, Antioch College in Ohio, and then I went to Columbia University for graduate school, you know, in Manhattan, New York City, but also, you know, I was sort of in and around the left my entire life, mm. um, and I considered myself to be a socialist uh, into my 30s, but I was always interested in freedom, I was always interested in the counterculture, which mm. socialists tended to be either uninterested in or somewhat disdainful of. Mm. Uh, you know, growing up in Berkeley in the 1970s and 80s, right, there was both the hardcore political socialist types like my parents and their friends. And then there were also, of course, the hippies and gays and the blacks um, mm. who were, you know, interest, who were interested in simply different ways of living outside bourgeois norms. Mm. And I was always very attracted to all of that, but I didn't really know what to make of it. Okay. Um, um, and my parents were actually better than a lot of their comrades were, but you know, people who were part of the people who were part of what was called the new left, really hardcore political people, as I said, tended to sort of shun that or consider it to be unserious. Right? What was really important was politics and economics, and institutions and government and capitalism, et cetera. And if you weren't if you weren't primarily interested in overthrowing those institutions and replacing them with socialist ones that you weren't a serious person worthy of consideration. So, um, but what I saw sort of in the streets, uh, and in music and in popular culture by the counterculture was always very attractive to me. And I, and I thought that there was something political about it, but I couldn't make sense of it until much later in my life in my thirties, really when I was in graduate school mm. and, um, found that, at Columbia University um, and in academia generally, the same thing held, which was that there was a, a general lack of interest or really lack of knowledge in 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 uh, uh, the liberatory nature of popular culture. And when I say popular culture, I don't just mean TV shows and movies, although those are very very important, but uh, another way of putting it is vernacular culture, just simply the, the ways in which ordinary people think um, and talk and what their day-to-day -day interests are and desires are, mm. um, which, which is all very different than <laughs> what leftists and especially academic leftists are interested in. Mm. Uh, and I just plan, you know, just I was simply more attracted to the counterculture than than the life led by your typical left winger. Mm. Um, so that led me, and then you know I found in I was I was studying history. I was in a graduate program in history, PhD program in history at Columbia, and you know I just found this was in the early '90s. There was hardly any, at that point there was hardly anything written on the history of American popular culture. Um, there was just an incredible lack of interest in it. And I, I found that to be just shocking, you know. I mean, this is this is the way, whether you like it or not. I mean, this is simply the way that most people have lived. This is the stuff that most people have been interested in. Mm. They've they've not been interested in running for Congress or or forming trade unions or marching in the streets <laughs> protesting something, right? Uh, so you, if you if you're missing if you're not talking about popular culture, you're not talking about most of American life mm. or most or most of life any anywhere. Um, <laughs> so. I started looking. Now, at that time, 
it was just beginning. There was there was the, that was the beginning of some scholarly interest in popular culture, and that has that has grown since the '90s. And so there's certainly more, much more now than there was then. However, um, I found that m- most of the time, scholar- academics who and they're almost all left wing who study pop culture try to fit it into already existing political discourse. Mm. So what what they want to do is they'll see a TV show and they'll either <clears throat> they either want to make it part of sort of long-standing American poli- uh, negative political discourse. It's racist, it's sexist, it's homophobic, mm. it's heteronormative. And I often agree with all that stuff. That's mm. all fine. Um or and this this is really bothers me um, is when they'll see something that they like, and rather than simply say that is about pleasure and freedom, full stop, they will try to make it into something that is somehow communitarian or proto-socialist or <laughs> mm. or uh, I don't know black nationalist or something. Right? They'll try to fit it into some left wing political mm. discourse um, which bothers me tremendously because what they're doing is they're um, they're doing a few things but one of the things they're doing is they're placing their own ideas in the heads of people who yeah, probably don't know about this stuff this is what I, what I like about your book so much because it completely changes the narrative on, on how to, to tell history it's, it's, it's much like the book of Christopher Ryan where he tells like a different story uh, of sexuality and And to, to get more methodical about um, this. Yeah, uh, yeah. Chris is a good friend of mine. I've been on, as you know, I think I've been on his podcast several times. And um, yeah, we yes, we are interested in similar things. Uh, we can get into our differences, which are interesting too. <laughs> But mm-hmm. uh, um, well, well, let's do it because actually it is it is real relevant to what we're talking about. No, no, I, I, just, I, I just wanted to say it's, um, your, your uh, approach to history, it's not like uh, uh, from, from, from top to bottom where you explain history in terms of what happens and with the great events and with the great people, but from, from the bottom up, you know, and you are more integrative uh, in this yeah. way because you can, you can integrate what, what is happening in the streets and this is what, when it gets interesting, I guess. Yeah, well, so... Um, It's important to understand the history of history first, historiography. Um, and so until the 1960s or 70s, you know, most history was written from the top down, right? Mm. It, was, it was written by people we would call conservatives now, and they were almost exclusively interested in government um, and big business. Mm. And they, they told history generally from the perspective of the people at the heads of those institutions. So, you know, there were many, many, of course, biographies of presidents and senators and inventors and captains of industry, uh, you know, and that's all fine and important and interesting. And I'm glad it happened, you know, but it was of course missing, you know, much of American life. Hmm. Um, and that was replaced largely in the 1970s and 80s by what we call history from the bottom up or social history. Hmm. Uh, But the, what that did was, that new narrative was, um, it sort of replaced Thomas Jefferson and Thomas Edison with Martin Luther King and Rosa Parks and Elizabeth Cady Stanton, sort of mm. the leaders of the great social movements. Mm. 
Uh, that too was very important and interesting, and I'm glad it happened. But Martin Luther King and Rosa Parks and Elizabeth Cady Stanton are not ordinary Americans either. They're not really at the bottom either for a couple of reasons. One is that, you know, I mean, by any measure, Martin Luther King was an extraordinary person. The leaders of social movements were extraordinary people. Mm. You know, a tiny, 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 tiny percentage of Americans have done anything like what those people did. Um, the vast majority of Americans weren't even interested in politics in the way, in, in the kinds of politics that they were uh, uh, conducting. Mm. And, and then secondly, and maybe, maybe more importantly, and this is really a major theme in my book, the leaders of those social movements, the great social movements in American history, and I'm talking about the civil rights movement and the f feminist movement, the mainstream feminist movement, mm. abolitionism, um, the labor movement, socialism, communism, all of them had and put forward the exact same cultural values that were promoted by the founding fathers and the great capitalists and the great political leaders who mm. were in the down history. So they put forward the Protestant work ethic, you know, uh, the work in itself is a good thing. It makes one virtuous. Mm. Uh, they were hostile to sexual freedom, uh, you know, uniformly hostile to sexual freedom. Mm. They promoted the nuclear family as the best way to live. Um, they were all nationalistic and patriotic. You know, so that those are all profoundly conservative values that are not unimportant, <laughs> if you ask me, or a lot of people. <laughs> and it's interesting okay. that you know all of our new heroes actually want to live in exactly the same way that the founding fathers wanted us to live. Mm. Uh, now they wanted to sort of shuffle the chairs on the deck of the ship so that black people weren't sitting in the back anymore, but they're on the same ship. Uh, you know, or they wanted to shuffle the chairs so that women were at the front, you mm -hmm. know, but it's the ship. It's the same ship where everybody works nine to five, loves their job, comes home to their family, which is mom, dad, and two kids in a nice house, in a nice house in the suburb. So, you know, I, I'm all for desegregation. I'm all for eliminating barriers that stop people from doing what they want to do. But if what they want to do is live the way we've been told to live for 300 years, I'm less interested in your movement. Hmm. Uh, but it's not so much that I'm making a political intervention, although of course I am. I mean, I'm really the book is mostly simply trying to show people that that has been what's going on in those social movements, that they were not nearly as not nearly as radical as people think they were. In fact, they were profoundly conservative at their core, at their core. And you can see it, you know, in recent iterations of the social movements, uh, the gay rights movement. You know, what has it accomplished lately? Gay marriage. <laughs> I mean, there you go. I mean, so it's that's, that's kind totally. of the best, best evidence for my argument. It has been. The purpose of it, this explicit stated purpose of the gay rights movement recently has been to essentially eliminate the sexual freedom that was at the cult in the center of gay culture hmm. for decades, decades and replace it with a heteronormative gay culture in which there's uh, two moms or two dads, but they operate like mom and dad. They operate under the same narrative. Yes. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. 
exactly. So, but, right. but what what then, I found very yeah, sorry, what I found very interesting is that that you explicitly explicitly say, okay, I'm I'm not um, like uh, describing history as it is, like a modernist would do this, or you, you don't say, okay, everything is relative how we describe, but you take a, a with the knowledge that that your stance is in a way arbitrary, you take a specific look to history and and you you. Um, um, use uh, academic research to, to ground your findings. And this is what I find really interesting. It's not, this is history and that happened. You know that, that there's no, no truth in itself, but we can only have perspectives on history. Yeah. And, and uh, I missed some of the words you said, but I think I, under, I, think I get the gist of the question, so okay. let me just tell you what I, what I am doing in that mm -hmm. regard. Um, <laughs> I think I'm doing in that regard. So I am a postmodernist and a relativist. Um, I don't think there's any true version of history. I don't think there's any, you know, real or accurate or objective telling of history. Um, but you're right that I absolutely use modernist empirical methodology to put forward my particular narrative, which I make no truth claims about. Hmm. Uh, so yeah, the book is chock full of evidence that any any old school modernist historian would value um, and would have to reckon with, right? Mm. So I am playing their game. I'm just simply not making truth claims. Mm. Um, Some people you know, in I, Europe would say you have a post postmodern uh, approach to history because because of this, you know, you 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 can you can view. These, these narratives of the liberals, and you can view all these this narratives, and and you can choose some and and uh, apply your method to it. Have you ever thought about this? Uh, I'm not sure what the question is. I could you yeah could you ask the question again? Now uh, have have you ever thought about post postmodernism? Because when when I when I listen to your podcast and read your book, it's it's more uh, than a than a postmodern stance. You know, it's more about just uh, relativism, and and it's it's about the, the the awareness of the narratives, and to 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 construct a narrative which is more inclusive, you know, which are in a way more post postmodern uh, approaches. Yeah, to. I mean, I suppose so. I mean, yeah, there are well, there are many many people in my narrative that don't exist in the other narratives. Mm. If that's what you mean, if that's what you mean by more inclusive, but. You know, I don't really get into this in the book itself, but I've talked about this quite a lot outside mm. the book. It it is not a claim that it's the accurate or a more accurate history. Mm. It's a different. It's just it's simply a different narrative, um, and you can take it or leave it. But if you like it, if you like the narrative and want to use it or adopt it, it is, as I said, full of evidence that will speak to people who are not postmodern relativists. Mm. Right. And therefore, it might be more persuasive to them, the people who believe there is a true narrative out there or a, an objective narrative. It will it will actually speak to objectivists as well, because it has their evidence, it has the kind of evidence that they respect. So but uh, uh, when, when, when you yeah. talk about liberals, uh, normally yeah. they can't they can't observe their own narratives. And that, that is the <laughs> problem you're talking about, no? Absolutely, yeah. I mean, that's yeah, that's a very important point, right? They, what they're, it is an amazing phenomenon that I noticed. I think in my very first semester in graduate school, there was a lot of talk about objectivity 
among historians then. This is in the early 90s. It's it's still around, but it was a really hot topic in the 1990s, early 1990s. And mm. a, a big book had just about this very topic, you know, in the historical profession. Mm. About, about um, well, I mean, it was basically about whether there is such a thing as objective history, right? Mm. And um, I was sort of shocked that people weren't aware <laughs> that there wasn't the following critique, that so-called objective history is simply the dominant narrative of the time, hmm. right? Exactly. Whoever, whoever claims to be speaking objectively is simply... Unaware of the narrative he's using. Is simply iterating the dominant narrative, that's hmm. all, you know, of the moment, of that moment, of that particular moment. So, hmm. And in the 19, early 1990s American historical profession, that was essentially a liberal narrative, mm. right? Um, and so, lo and behold, what is objective to them is, guess what? Liberal, right? Mm. Now, 30, 40 years earlier, what was objective was conservative and racist and patriarchal and all the rest of it, right? I mean, of course, it changes over time. It's an absurd idea to me that there can be any such thing as objective history. Mm. Um, and that, and any action, and then more importantly, any claim that it exists to me is simply a conservative move mm. it's actually conservative in the in the sort of broad sense right it means that you know it, it is an attempt to limit the discourse um to to forestall radical uh interventions right it is an attempt to protect the dominant narrative of the moment so which is, is the, by yeah. definition conservative so this is the reason why you don't identify as a liberal, because you, you you are aware of those narratives and you can deconstruct them. Uh, yeah, I don't I, I don't define myself as a modern liberal, if that's okay. what you mean. I mean, a, I have some solidarity with classical liberalism, although mm. I have many major differences with that as well. Mm. But I certainly. I don't identify with any part. My my book and my work generally is a massive attack on modern liberalism mm -hmm. uh, from many directions. You know, I, I come at it, I attack it from the left, I attack it at some moments from the right. Um, I you know, it's I the entire project is um, <laughs> to use their word problematic to me. Mm. <laughs> um, mm. But normally, so, just just to get this straight, normally uh, uh, left-wing liberals uh, uh, are supposed to be postmodernist as well. Normally, or is it not uh, in the United States this way? Well, so we need to distinguish between liberals and left-wing. Um, mm. You know, those are I think those are useful and different categories actually. So liberals, you know, most people think of them, and I think of them as um, having. Uh, as being tied to, I suppose you could say, the establishment in some mm. way or another. You know, not formally, if not if not formally, they are interested in protecting portions of the establishment or the establishment per se, the dominant, mm. the dominant narrative, the dominant institutions. Um, you know, they are they want to protect the constitution. They want to protect. The, inst the institution of the presidency, right? <laughs> Especially when they're guys in office, mm. um, they are, you know, they are uncritically patriotic, right? They will stand for the national anthem. Mm. Um, they, 
they do want a large military. They just wanted to do somewhat different things in the world. Um, <laughs> you know, and then as, as I was talking about, more, maybe more importantly or as important, um, they, their cultural values are totally um, traditional okay. and normative. Right. And so it's, they're all about work and, and they will never, they won't even question. They won't, they won't, they won't even think about those questions. They won't even think about the nuclear family um, okay. or, or, or nationalism or that, or the existence of national borders. Uh, right. It's, they don't, they don't, they're not radical is what mm. I'm saying. They don't actually think outside the dominant, dominant discourse. Mm. Uh, so anyone who I call left wing, does at least ask those questions, right? Um, is the nuclear family good? <laughs> um, should we have borders? Um, should there be uh, a, a Marine Corps? <laughs> should there be an Air Force? Mm. Should there should there be a, uh, an executive office in the United States government, right? Okay. Um, so that's what I mean by left wing. Okay. Um, and so I have nothing in common with liberals. I am, I am, I am the antichrist to liberals, <laughs> and I want to be. But I obviously have some, uh, quite a bit of similarity to you know people I call left, the left. Although I also have differences as well, there is some solidarity there with mm -hmm. the left. Mm -hmm. I, I have to ask this with America and Donald Trump, and because we as Europeans can can you give us a, your take? On this, on on the presidential campaigns of of Trump, of of his appeal, and and what President uh, Trump. Made. Okay, well, you're you're asking me about, about the current presidential campaign, right? Exactly. So, um, the this presidential campaign is very interesting in some ways, and less interesting than some people are saying it is at the same time. Uh, You know, I do think that the Sanders campaign and the Trump campaign, or I should say the phenomena of them, um, are moving the discourse outward. They're broadening American political discourse. And I think that's a very good thing. So, you know, Sanders is saying things that were outside of legitimate political discourse. Hmm. Um before he ran and Trump is doing the same thing. He's clear Trump is clearly saying th things that are were not respectable, not legitimate in political discourse until this year. And I think that's great. Uh even though obviously much of what both of them are saying I don't like. Um and in Trump's case, you know, I despise in some cases what he's saying. But mm. um I do think it's good to discourse generally. Um I want I think to me the major problem with American electoral politics is the lack of choice uh, and the lack of diversity and the narrow, very, very narrow political, very, very narrow discourse within it. Mm. That, and that's been the case for, you could say, forever. <laughs> um, you could certainly say since World War II. I mean, before World War II, there were, there were, you know, the Socialist Party had a fairly significant presence um, in electoral politics. And so, you know, there was, and then there were some third party, sort of somewhat viable third parties before World War II. Hmm. But since World War II, it's been pretty much a lockdown, uh, a duopoly. Um, 
And, and you know, I, I think that this election cycle may move us farther than ever before toward breaking that duopoly. Mm. I think, I think, I hope that when Sanders loses the uh, he when he loses the nomination and when Trump loses the general election hmm. or or even before then that their followers will branch off and establish separate parties outside the, outside the two major ones hmm. uh, I would love to see you know a a right wing populist party with Trump at the head of it hmm. and a social democrat party with Bernie Sanders at the head of it and a libertarian party and uh, um, you know communist party and I, I would love for it to look more European here okay <laughs> um, and I would love for people to have choices I would love for people to be talking about ideas for once mm. when it comes to electoral politics when you know it is in, in my lifetime the electoral the year of a presidential election is when political discourse is most narrow when it is the least interesting to me to talk about politics because the choices get very um, compressed. Do you think that that's a chance that we'll get out of it, uh, of this whole Trump thing that, that this could happen? Uh, I think it's certainly a possibility. And I think that, you know, already you're seeing in the Republican party, basically, I think it's looking, it's looking quite likely that the Republican Party is going to split hmm. because of this. I mean, that's that's what, you know, most most of the Republican leadership, or I should say a lot of the Republican leadership, and then certainly most of the intelligentsia around the Republican Party hate Trump. They hmm. hate him, and it's embarrassing, and it's a disaster for them. And they're, it's, to them, it is, it is the ruin of their party, um, But why, no, do, but why don't they get a, a proper candidate? I'm, 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 I was thinking of this, and I don't know. I, have, I don't have any clue. You know why? Why don't they got a, a you know, like a candidate in the format of of, of Sanders or Clinton? Well, they do. Clinton? They okay. do. His name's his name. They they do. The Republicans do. His name is Ted Cruz. So okay. I mean, so he's a very traditional conservative Republican type. I mean, he's right down the line. Okay. Of the Republican Party of the last. 30 to 40 years. He's a classic Reagan Republican. Okay. And, and he still might win it, by the way. Um, mm. But he's at, he's at least going to be a strong second. And that's who the establishment loves, or they like, at least. Um, and so I, I do think that the party, I think there's a good chance that the party will split into a Trump-led mm. faction or separate party and a, and a Cruz-led mm. party. Well, I think that would be great thing. And what would so. a President Trump mean for, for America and for, for, for Europe? I think it would mean basically a continuation of Obama. <laughs> how, how is that possible? Can you, can you elaborate oh, on this? Well, if you look, I mean, if you look at his actual, what, what happens with Trump is that people hear him say things that are naughty, <laughs> mm. right? And they freak out about it and they assume he's going to be Hitler. Um, when his actual policies are very similar to most, to much of the Democratic Party policies of the last 10 years and some Republican policies of the Bush era. You know, there's not really much. I mean, so on immigration, yes, he's calling for deporting 
all illegal immigrants. Well, Obama deported more illegal immigrants than any president ever. Mm. <laughs> so it would simply be maybe, and, and by the way, he wouldn't never get away with it. I mean, he couldn't, Trump could never actually do that for many reasons. So I think the actual effect of a Trump presidency on immigration would be not much different than what Obama's effect has been. Okay. I think people would still be deported in record numbers. I don't think it would be a much larger number, simply because logistically it's impossible to deport 11 million people. Hmm. Um, but also politically it would be impossible. Such opposition to that, it wouldn't happen. Um, so, you know, it's essentially the same policy to me, or it would be the same, as in effect, it would be the same policy um, or the same politics. Uh, uh, on foreign policy, so, you know, everyone has freaked out. They've talked about torturing Muslims, uh, torturing ISIS terrorists, right? Mm. Well, okay, is that is that better or worse than bombing the shit out of them and their children and their wives, right? Which is what Obama's been doing, <laughs> you know? I mean, is it worse to... Is it worse to waterboard someone or to vaporize their entire family with a with a remote controlled missile? On on foreign policy, Trump is actually to the left of Hillary Clinton. Uh, he has stated, you know, that Iraq was a bad idea. He's now opposed to the Iraq War, um, mm. and uh, he has, you know, at least in what he has said, suggested he is much less interested in intervention than Hillary Clinton is. Okay. Uh, and probably than Obama is. So, you know, <laughs> uh, and then on trade, which is his major issue, actually, he talks about trade more than anything else. Hmm. Um, he's He and Bernie Sanders are identical. There's no difference. They are both for very high tariffs. They're both protectionists. They're both for forcing companies hmm. to to keep their manufacturing and their businesses inside the United States, uh, they are identical. And Trump's position on trade is um, identical, to, not just to Bernie Sanders, but to most Democratic politicians of the last 50 or 60 years. He's a protectionist. He's a, mm. he's a Democrat, a liberal Democratic, laborite protectionist. Um, yeah, and then on everything else, it's sort of who knows. I mean, he's there's there's not he doesn't talk much about anything else, and it's you know he's an inconsistent when he does, and you know so. But on those core issues, mm. see, I don't see a great uh, difference from Obama and Bush. Why why is that? Why is he no different? Yeah, exactly. Um, well, I don't know why he's no different, but what's interesting is why he's considered to be so different <laughs> he's not so different he's different in the he's very different in the way he presents these ideas hmm. and that's okay. what people that's what people focus on and that's sort of how american politics operates generally we are 10 times more concerned with the ways in which people speak um and the ways in which they present themselves hmm. than we are with the substance of their ideas and their policies and i think that to me is the story of the Obama administration and of his candidacy. You know, mm. when basically Obama's campaign in 2008 was, you know, very conservative. It was very much a continuation of Bush's policies in a lot of ways. And but people loved the fact that he was uh, an articulate black man who was very smooth and elegant and seemed very mature and in control of himself. Um, people love that. And so mm. they didn't hear, they didn't hear 
that uh, or even see when he was doing it, <laughs> mm. he would continue many of Bush's policies or even double down on them, you know, which he did. And so it's very frustrating for me. But how is, how is that possible? The, the, the image he projected was some, some different. Uh, well, no, he did. I don't think he did. I mean, I think that people saw what they wanted to see in him. Mm. I mean, I, I don't th I don't blame Obama for any of this. I think he was, you know, he did. He did um, <laughs> change his line on some very important things. You know, he did um, have a surge in Afghanistan and he did keep troops in Iraq longer than he said he would. And he did not close Guantanamo. Hmm. It's all true. But generally speaking, I think he, 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 he gave us what he said he would. If you read his, especially in foreign policy, if you look at what he was saying about foreign policy in general, not on specific issues, during the campaign, you know, he was promising and the Democratic Party national um, platform was promising hmm. to expa expand the military, to have more army troops, more Marine Corps troops, to and to uh, expand what they called American leadership around the globe. In hmm. fact, Obama, you may have heard me talk about this on the Rogan podcast. I mean, Obama wrote an article in 2007 in Foreign Affairs magazine and it was called Renewing American Leadership. Uh, in which he called for all of these things. He called for all of these things. I mean, if you read that article, this is during the campaign. This is Obama himself wrote it. You know, it's it looks no different than the Republican Party. In mm. fact, it's it's more hawkish than the Republican Party in some ways. I mean, he was calling for expanding the military. This is in 2007. This is at the end of the Bush administration, right? When he's expanded the military more than anyone ever had. Well, mm. uh, so it, it was baffling to me that people thought he was a peace candidate. He was a war candidate from top to bottom, and guess mm. what he did? He got into office. Mm. He expanded the drone war. The drone war is much, much, much larger now under him than it was under Bush. Mm. Um, but we still think he's a great guy because of the no, way he, he himself. Yeah, he had a, a careful constructed public persona, which, which yeah, allows him to do something entirely different. It's it's remarkable though. I don't again. I don't think it's him. I don't. I don't blame him. I think you know he's never shied away. He's never pretended he's doing anything different. Mm. Um, it's just people want to see something in him that, that that's not there. Mm. In a, it's in a, a, yeah. Go ahead. No, in a podcast with Joe Rogan, you you joked about what happened if Bernie Sanders would go would be president and that he would start to. Um, uh, Bomb, uh, start bombing people, you know, and you you wondered how <laughs> how, how 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 this was happening. And I wondered, okay, what 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 is actually happening in the White House? Is that possible? Uh, and and what are the mechanisms in there so that a, that a peacenik or a guy who who stands for for uh, liberal values um, changes this policy so much when he is in the White House? Um. Yeah, it's an interesting question. You know, <clears throat> I heard. Do you know who Jeremy Scahill is? Who? His name is Jeremy Scahill. Do you no, know no, him? no, I don't know him. No. Okay, he's a fairly prominent American journalist who he's very left-wing. Specializes. He he writes about um, foreign policy, national security, and he's a huge critic of. Bush and Obama both on foreign policy. Um, unrelenting, excellent journalist and mm. uh, a great critic on these questions. But um, 
he, I heard him argue that, and he didn't know, but he was sort of speculating with some knowledge, you know, that what happened with Obama was, and with every president, that on the first day, basically, (laughs) of taking office, that the Joint Chiefs of Staff and the CIA, director of the CIA, and the whole sort of national security apparatus Hmm. uh, has a, you know, sits him down and lays out how dangerous the world is and how many threats are posed are, are facing the United States at that very moment. And that the only, the only option to save the country and to save American lives is to, you know, do what they say. Um, so I don't, who, I, I don't know. I mean, no one knows he was speculating. I don't know if that really happens, but even if it did happen, you know, uh, I'm skeptical about that. I mean, what, how much more Bernie Sanders has been in the Senate for how long? I don't know, many decades. I think he's been on, I think he's been on foreign policy committees, you know, where they, they get classified information. I mean, mm. he doesn't know as much as the director of the CIA, but Bernie Sanders and Hillary Clinton and even Barack Obama, who was in the Senate too, they know plenty <laughs> about what's going on in the world, right? They mm. know, they know what the threats are. I mean, I, I don't, I don't buy it. I don't buy it. I think that, you know, it's, it's, in other words, Scahill was essentially saying that the president has no agency, has no choice. That oh, really? Okay. Yeah, I think so. And that's my problem with Jeremy Scahill. He actually has a, he has a documentary called, which is, I think it's based on a book he wrote, I think, okay. called End, The Endless War, Endless War, hmm. uh, which is mostly about Afghanistan. But basically the argument is that that war will go on forever because the military industrial complex in the United States requires war and will always be here. So I, I don't like that either. I mean, he might be right, but I don't think so. What it does is it takes agency away from all of us, right? We have no choice. I don't think so. I mean, what, we, what, we what, do, the... what do you do, what do you think about this? About what? About the change of policy when when these candidates uh, come into office. Oh, what? Well, that's my point. I don't think he changed his policy. Oh, okay. I think Obama was an imperialist from the beginning. He was. Okay. I mean, you, everyone, if you don't agree with me, you must read that article. Read, I think it's Restoring American Leadership in 2007. Hmm. Uh, yeah, it's an imperialist document, you know, and, and I think Europeans would actually see that more clearly than Americans do because they're not afraid of words like imperialism and they would see what that is. But, you know, it's, it's, it's calling it American leadership. That's, you know, it's, it's calling for, uh, he calls for expanding the Amer- American power abroad. I mean, this is in 2007, right? This is during the Bush administration when there are military, U.S. military bases all over the world. Hmm. Uh, when there were two hot wars going on and several smaller wars going on, you know, I mean, he and he did. He, there are more wars going on. There are more countries right now under Obama than there were under Bush. Hmm. We are killing people in many more countries now than we were in 2007, 2008. Hmm. Um. Yeah, no, it's he. He comes from an old progressive tradition uh, in America uh, that advocated American leadership of the world. You know, our job, our mission, because we're so special, is to uplift the rest of the world and make them more like us. Hmm. It's an it's an imperialist vision, and that's really. I think Obama's been. That's been Obama's vision. It's Hillary Clinton's vision to some extent. It's even Bernie Sanders's vision. Hmm. And, you know who doesn't have that vision is Donald Trump, actually. And I'm no fan of Donald Trump at all. 
but he interesting. Mm-hmm. he's he's not an imperialist in that way. He doesn't care about I don't think he doesn't care about going out into the Middle East and introducing them to democracy and you know liberal and and capitalism and <laughs> you know that's a progressive and then it became a neoconservative vision. But if you look at all the great wars in American history, beginning with the Spanish American War in in eighteen ninety eight through World War One, World War Two, Korea, Vietnam. All of those were led by progressives, Mm. people we would call liberals now, but progressives, right, who said our mission is to do two things. We must uplift the poor in the ghettos in our own cities inside the United States and make them more like us, right, make them them into good, upstanding American citizens who live in families and, and work hard at their jobs and volunteer for the military. And then we must do the same thing for the poor, benighted people outside the United States. And the only way to do that is to invade their countries, overthrow the the rulers in those countries, and then put our schools in those countries and educate those people to make them more like Americans. Hmm. I mean, that's the stated mission in all of those wars, right through Vietnam. That was LBJ, Lyndon Baines Johnson's stated policy was to make the Vietnamese more like Americans, to bring liberal American democracy to Vietnam. Hmm. There's, uh, a, there's a really fascinating part in your book about um, uh, the, the German-American relationships between and, and in the World War II. As the general narrative it describes, they are the, 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 the Americans with the democracy and they saved the world, but there were two brothers Uh, systematically speaking, fighting for world dominance in a way. Yeah. Um, and this is pretty sim- uh, similar to this, what you are describing now. Um, yeah, although that, that chapter is more about the similarities between the New Deal, Franklin Roosevelt's exactly. New mm-hmm. Deal, yes. and, and um, Nazism and Italian fascism. Um, but yes, uh, it, it, well... <laughs> Actually, I mean, the new, the new Deal, Roosevelt and the New Deal and that sort of strand of American progressivism is uh, actually, I would say, more imperialist than either Hitler or Mussolini were. <laughs> uh, because Hitler and Mussolini were interested in relatively narrow conquests, right? Mm. I mean, Hitler was interested mostly in Central Europe, somewhat in Western Europe, but he was mm. content just th- with just that, right? Uh, pretty much. And, you know, so he certainly didn't have a global vision um, of, you know, uh, of uh, of a, a sort of a German empire globally. Um, mm. And neither did, neither did Mussolini. I mean, Mussolini was interested in, in Ethiopia, uh, but, you know, neither one of them ever articulated an idea of making the entire world look like them. Mm. Well, if you look at American progressives, <laughs> that is exactly what they said. I mean, mm. that is exactly Theodore Roosevelt, Woodrow Wilson, Franklin Roosevelt, Harry Truman, John F. Kennedy, Lyndon Baines Johnson, and Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton have all said, all said, I'm not making this up. You can look it up yourself. <laughs> They've all said that their, their mission, because America is exceptional and better than any other nation in the history of the world, Our God-given mission, and that's the language they have used, is to go out into the world. It's a very Christian idea, by the way. Go out into the world and basically convert people to our way of life. Hmm. 
And so that's what happened in the Philippines in the early 20th century after the Spanish-American War. That where did it come from? Where did this uh, uh, way of living, of this approach to the world, where does it, does it come from? The Bible. Okay. It's a Christian idea. And what for whatever you know for whatever reason Americans have really taken to that more than maybe any other people. Mm. Um, you know this it's an evangelical idea, right? That we are we are godly, we are better, we are superior. Our way of life is superior. Mm. And what's interesting though is they don't just they're not just content with that, right? It's not just well we have a better way of life and let's just live this way because we're so great. It's th this idea that they must make others live this way. They must lift up. The people who don't live that way hmm. uh it's uh, you know it's it's in the bible i mean this is <laughs> this is the teaching of jesus i mean this is what he said he said go out and convert others uh, in other nations that's true mm -hmm. um you know and so the americans secularized that in a way they mm -hmm. made that their national mission mm -hmm. but it's what's interesting is it's not a conservative idea right conservatives have hated this idea conservatives you know classical conservatives in this country have been generally opposed to that. You know, they, they're not interested in messing around with foreigners. They don't like foreigners. <laughs> they're not, they don't want to help foreigners. Okay. Um, so that's actually more Donald Trump's game. Okay. He's, he, he'll, they're, they're very interested in killing them when they would, they perceive them as a threat. That's for sure. But Donald Trump's not interested in going into Syria and making Syrians into upstanding Americans. Um, you know, he's just wants to kill them when they get in our way. Or do, or do do nasty things to us, and that's sim similar to John McCain. John McCain was very similar. These are not actually imperialists in that in the sort of global way that progressives have been. Hmm. So, uh, you know, in other words, the idea of um, being one's uh, brother's keeper, which is Obama's favorite phrase. You know, we have an obligation to be our brother's keeper, which is a b biblical phrase. Uh, you know, has resulted in the deaths of millions of people. <laughs> because it's, it, it's crazy because mm -hmm. it requires invading countries right mm -hmm. overthrowing the leaders in those countries in order to get at our brothers so that mm -hmm. we can <laughs> but but can we can we for a moment delve more into into the relationship between germany and and the new deal which sure. you described which you described into into the book because the, the main narrative as i learned it in school that the that the americans freed us um, from right. Nazism in a way, but yeah. the way you describe it, it's it's a little bit different. Well, so I am not the first historian to argue this or to present the evidence for it, um, but it is, to my eyes and to the eyes of several historians, not most, but several historians, um, totally clear that the New Deal and fascism in Italy and in Germany were very, very similar. Um, the, the difference, and this is not a small difference, you know, it's a very big difference, was that we, of course, did not, or we, the United States, did not engage in genocide of a people or several peoples, as mm. happened in Germany. But uh, if you look at, the, if, you look at uh, if you compare the U.S. and Italy in the 1920s and 30s, or if you compare, sorry, if you compare the New Deal with Italian fascism, uh, there's not a lot of difference between the two. And if you look at Nazism, except for the Nazi racial policies, there's not a lot of difference either. So in the New Deal, as in Nazi Germany and in uh, fascist Italy, there was, uh, of course, uh, a great development of the welfare state. 
you know, that's when the welfare state was developed in all three countries. Hmm. Uh, there was, you know, in all three countries, there was, you know, new laws protecting workers. There were massive public works projects in all three countries, right? Building, building of roads and bridges and national parks and trails, hiking trails and libraries and airports and schools and all of that. Hmm. That was really central in all three regimes. Uh, there was a, in all three, there was a, a, a nationalist upsurge. I mean, it didn't, in the United States, it didn't have quite the violent rhetoric of Nazi nationalism, but it was pretty close, actually. I mean, if you look at the New Dealers, Roosevelt's language at the time, it was highly militaristic. Hmm. You know, he often, he often compared the New Deal to uh, a military exercise. Hmm. He used martial language all the time. And again, I'm not the first historian to say this. I mean, this has actually, you know, been written about by others as well. It's just never become sort of the dominant view, but it's, mm. it's a significant minority view. Um, and then, you know, if, if you don't believe that there's a, there was a great similarities between the New Deal um, and Nazi Germany and fascist Italy, look at what the Nazis and the Italian fascists said about the New Deal <laughs> and vice versa. Mm. They were great fans of each other until they went to war in the, in the late 1930s. Mm. Uh, in the in, from the time uh, the New Deal begins in 1933-34 through 1938-ish, uh, you have Nazis and Italian fascists praising Roosevelt and the New Deal and saying again and again and again that it looked a whole lot like their own regimes. Mm -hmm. And you also had several New Dealers, not Roosevelt himself, but a lot of his brains trust, his top advisors, saying similar things about the Italians and the Germans. So, uh, you know, there, there have been... So it there was have a been, zeitgeist phenomenon. Yeah, you could say that. You could say that. It was Well, I would just say it was a transatlantic phenomenon. Hmm. In fact, that's, I think that is what I say in the book. Uh, it was a transatlantic phenomenon. Um, and, of course, there were fascist movements that weren't as successful, but there were significant fascist movements throughout Europe during that period hmm. who, all, who all had the basic same, same basic programs. Um, then what the Nazis did that was different, different, of course, was they sort of added on to fascism, which is fascism itself is not a uh, not necessarily a genocidal politics. The Nazis added added that on. That was a particular brand of fascism that the mm. Nazis invented. Right. The Italians didn't have that. And fascists elsewhere have not been genocidal in that way. Um, so, no, it was uh, originally was a way to structure uh, uh, the society. Yeah, it's a well. It's actually, I mean, in, in its origins, it's a, it's political. It's a, it's a, um, it's an economic system. I mean, mm. it's a, it's a political economy, in which the economy is structured like the family, so that there is a father at the head, um, who takes care of his children, or in this case, the capitalist takes care of the workers, and then in return, the, the workers must be obedient and loyal to the father or the capitalist. That's mm. the origin. That's the origin of fascist economics, which is called corporatism. We call it corporatism, um, and uh, you know, and then and then added onto that is a, a nationalism, right? So the whole thing becomes the nation state. So that the head of the state is the father, and the citizens are the children, right? And they have this familial duty to one another, loyalty mm -hmm. to one. Another. That's the heart of fascism. And then there, are, then from there, 
you know, different fascist movements have, have added on their own particular twist. But uh, that's the core of fascism, and that is what the New Deal was all about. Mm. Yeah. Do, do you have in America a discussion about um, basic income, condition, uh, conditionless basic income? There is some discussion about it. Uh, I support it. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, so the universal basic income, it has various names. You know, I, I usually call it the universal basic income, UBI. Uh, I like it because it replaces the welfare state um, with a very simple um, means of, just, of uh, transferring wealth to people that takes away a lot of the, the paternalistic controls of the welfare state. When, the thing I dislike the most about the welfare state is that you have social workers and politicians in your life when you get aid. Hmm. They're telling you how to live and they're monitoring your behavior um, and they will make aid conditional on very personal behavior. Um, I hate that, you know, and so the UBI, at least in theory, gets rid of that, right? It's just a, it's a, it's an automatic cash transfer to every single person, regardless of who they are, exactly. what they, what they do, what their income is even. Uh, I like that a lot. I like that a lot. So I'm all but for it. it. But, there, is, there is a discussion about it. There is a discussion about it. It's not reached into the presidential campaign. You know, even Sanders isn't talking about that. I think because Sanders actually loves the idea of the government being in people's lives. Hmm. <laughs> I mean that. Um, and Clinton is, of course, too far too conservative for that. Um, but um, but yeah, there is. I you know, it's what's interesting is here in the United States. The discussion about the UBI has been in libertarian circles because a lot of libertarians favor it, actually, okay. uh, because it does do away with the welfare state or it replaces the welfare state with something much less intrusive and paternalistic. Uh, and socialists you know, who who like it for obvious reasons, although socialists, the most most of the socialists I know who have advocated for it don't want to do away with the welfare state. They just want to add the UBI to it. But anyway, I mean, so it's, it is, it is, um, there is an active discussion about it in those two camps here. It hasn't gotten into mainstream political discourse yet, but it might soon. The problem with welfare, as it's currently constructed, is it does give freedom to people, right? You have social workers constantly. Yeah. You have social workers coming to your house, literally, into your house or your apartment, and looking around and snooping and asking you questions and making aid additional on how you live. That's not freedom. No, of course not. So at this point of the conversation, the internet connection was so bad that we could barely hear each other. So again, I'm I'm really grateful that uh, Thaddeus took the time to do this little very interesting talk. You guys have a good time. Uh, hear you next week. Thank you.